Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to my new podcast, which, at least preliminarily, I'm going to call ACRAC. ACRAC is an acronym which stands for Anesthesia and Critical Care Reviews and Commentaries. I like ACRAC because, first, it gives the suggestion that there might be a lot going on here. And while this is going to start as a podcast or several podcasts that may be useful for residents reviewing for the board exams, it leaves open the possibility that in the future I may be able to add lots of different things around the study of, research of, practice of anesthesia and critical care. I also like the fact that ACRAC kind of reminds me of AFLAC, that umbrella insurance company with the duck on their commercials. And I always kind of liked that duck. And who knows, maybe one day if this podcast is successful, we'll have a duck of our own. If you don't like ACRAC or you have a better name that you think I should use for this podcast, please let me know. You can leave comments in the comment section of the website or you can email me at acracpodcast at gmail.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C podcast at gmail.com. My name is Jed Wolpaw. I'm an assistant professor of anesthesia and critical care medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where I practice both general OR anesthesia and critical care medicine. I primarily do my critical care time in the cardiac surgical ICU, and my OR time is spread amongst pretty much everything that is not pediatrics or cardiac anesthesia. I recently took both the written and oral boards and have a pretty good understanding of what the expectations are. I also give talks to the residents here at Johns Hopkins, preparing them through in-person lectures for their uh, board exams at the end, both of their now CA1 year and at the end of CA3 year for the final portion. I imagine these podcasts as something that would serve as a supplemental study guide, something that you could listen to as you were working out or commuting, and that would supplement whatever lectures your residency program is providing uh, in person. Use these any way you would like. I highly recommend using them to listen to as you work out. I believe that the brain is able to better absorb and retain information when you are active, when you're running or biking, much more so than when you're sedate and sitting at a computer. In fact, I've always wished that I could have a treadmill at the back of a lecture hall so that rather than sitting and fighting to stay awake, I could absorb that information and stay awake while 
walking or even jogging in the back of the hall. Now, that's something that I haven't been able to figure out quite yet. Without further ado, let's move on with our first topic, which today is going to be the topic of gas laws. Now, this doesn't sound like the most exciting topic in the world, but it's actually fairly interesting and very high yield for the anesthesia boards. So let's get started. I'm going to talk about vapor pressure, anesthetic concentrations, vaporizer types and safety features, uptake and elimination of inhaled anesthetics, effects of ventilation and circulation, the concentration effect, the second gas effect, and nitrous oxide in closed spaces. Let's try to mix in some questions as we go. So the first one on vapor pressure, which inhaled anesthetic has the highest vapor pressure? If you were choosing between sevoflurane, desflurane, nitrous oxide, and halothane, take a minute, what would you choose? The answer is, I'm sure you know, is nitrous oxide, and it's not even close. The vapor pressure of nitrous oxide is 38,000 compared to the next highest of desflurane is 669. So nitrous oxide far and away has the highest vapor pressure, and we'll talk more about why that is and what that means in a second. What is vapor pressure? Imagine you put a pot of water on the stove and you turn the stove on to make the water boil. You can imagine that if you put a lid on that pot, as the water gets hotter and hotter, that lid may start to rattle. Something is pushing on it, causing it to move to rattle on top of that pot. And what's causing it to move are the molecules of water that are becoming gas and are exerting force on the bottom of that pot lid. That's the vapor pressure. Vapor pressure increases as temperature increases. So now take that same pot and imagine that you don't have any heat on. You just have a pot of water on the stove and you put a lid on it. There's still some force. There's some amount of molecules that are escaping from that liquid and are bouncing off that lid. They're not enough to make the lid rattle, but they do exist. Different substances have different vapor pressures. So, for example, if you tried to put nitrous oxide in that pot, you would never be able to pour it. It would never exist as a liquid at regular pressure. And so you would, it would all be a gas. It would all be pushing up against that lid. If you tried to put water in, as we just saw in our example, some of it would escape into gas form and some of it would stay as a liquid. Now, you may be asked, what is vapor pressure proportional to? And as we've seen, it's proportional to temperature because the higher the temperature, the more pressure is exerted by those molecules. The more molecules escape from the liquid form and the more pressure is exerted on the lid. Let's see how this could be applied in a board type question. If you accidentally filled a sevoflurane vaporizer with isoflurane, what would happen? In order to answer this question, you have to understand how a variable bypass vaporizer works. So what happens, you, on one end you have fresh gas flow coming in. And depending on how much anesthetic you request, what you, how much you dial in on your anesthetic dial, 2%, 3%, 4%, the vaporizer will direct more or less of the fresh gas flow that you that is coming in one side over a pool of anesthetic that is liquid and sitting in a chamber in that vaporizer. Now, imagine what that looks like. You have a pool of liquid, and above that liquid are molecules of gas. As the fresh gas comes in, it will mix with and pick up some of the molecules of gas. So obviously, the more gas that's there, the more molecules have it, that have escaped from the liquid, the higher the vapor pressure, the more gas will be picked up. 
That's how the vaporizer works. And then the portion of the gas flow that was directed away from the anesthetic chamber and the portion that has gone through and picked up anesthetic gas will meet up and come out the other end of the vaporizer. More anesthetic gas will be part of that mixture if more of the initial gas flow was directed over the pool of anesthetic. So if you turn that vaporizer as high as it will go, a large portion of fresh gas will be directed over the anesthetic pool. If you turn it on just a little bit, most of the gas will be will bypass the anesthetic chamber and only a small amount of the fresh gas will go over the anesthetic. Now let's return to our question. You accidentally fill a sevofluorine vaporizer with isofluorine. So the answer is you would deliver an overdose of inhaled anesthetic. And why is this? Again, we have to go back to the vapor pressures. So the vapor pressure of sevofluorine is 157 and the vapor pressure of isofluorine is 238. So when you put isofluorine in your sevofluorine vaporizer, there will be more molecules of gas sitting above that chamber of liquid because it has a higher vapor pressure. And by definition, having a higher vapor pressure means there will be more gas sitting above that liquid. Normally, when you have sevofluorine in that vaporizer, there is, let's say, there are 10 molecules sitting above that liquid, and I'm just making this number up. But now we've got iso, and isofluorine has a higher vapor pressure, so now there are 20 molecules above that pool of anesthetic. Now when your fresh gas flow comes in, it will pick up much more anesthetic than it should have. It will pick up a portion of those 20 molecules instead of a portion of those 10 molecules, and so you will have more anesthetic in that gas. The vaporizer will still direct flow over that anesthetic pool as if there were sevofluorine in it. So if you dial in 2%, it will send the correct gas flow over that pool to pick up 2% of sevofluorine, but maybe it will actually end up picking 3% of isofluorine up because there are more molecules to pick up. And now you have two problems. One is that you've now picked up more. You have 3% where you dialed in 2%, but also you've got 3% of isofluorine instead of 2% of sevofluorine, and now you're delivering 3 mac where you would have been delivering 1 mac of sevofluorine, and you can see how you would get an overdose. There is a mnemonic that people use to remember the vapor pressures of some of the inhaled anesthetics, and that is high C. You may remember, or you may not, but high C was a boxed fruit drink, and by fruit I mean sugar, water, and a picture of fruit on the front that was sold back when I was a kid. And high C is spelled H-I, at least for our acronym, is spelled H-I-S-E, and it stands for H-I, halothane, and isofluorine, because those two have similar vapor pressures around 240, and SE for sevofluorine and enfluorine, which have similar vapor pressures around 160 to 170. And so if you filled a sevofluorine vaporizer with enfluorine, you wouldn't have a problem in terms of getting the percentage that you dialed in. You'd still get the same percent of anesthetic that you dialed in, though it would, of course, be enfluorine instead of sevofluorine. We talked about how variable bypass vaporizers work. And it's important to know that of the common inhaled anesthetics that we use, sevofluorine, isofluorine, maybe you still see enfluorine somewhere, unlikely. And of course, desfluorine. Of those common inhaled anesthetics, sevofluorine, isofluorine, and enfluorine, and halothane, though you probably won't see that anywhere, 
use variable bypass vaporizers. Desflurane and nitrous oxide do not. Nitrous oxide, as I'm sure you know, is in a tank just as oxygen or air is in the back of the anesthetic machine or piped in from the wall. And desflurane has its own special type of vaporizer. And why is that? Why does des have its own special type of vaporizer? Why not use a variable bypass vaporizer? The answer is that desflurane is too unstable because its vapor pressure is close to atmospheric pressure. And what does it mean when a molecule's vapor pressure is close to atmospheric pressure or equals atmospheric pressure? It means that that liquid will start to boil. So when we had our pot of water on the stove with no heat on, there was a constant number of molecules above that water bouncing off the top that we had placed on the pan. But you can imagine that if we started to boil that water, then that water would be actively converting into gas and the amount of molecules above that liquid would be changing constantly. It would be increasing and increasing. So you wouldn't be able to calculate how much air to send over that liquid to pick up a set amount of molecules because those number of molecules would be increasing constantly. And so with desflurane, if we put it just a pool of desflurane in a vaporizer at normal pressure and temperature, a small swing in temperature of the room or pressure in that vaporizer could cause it to boil. And once it started boiling, we wouldn't be able to control how much we were delivering. Remember, desflurane's vapor pressure is about 670, and the atmospheric pressure is about 760, depending on your altitude, so close enough where we worry about boiling. The other inhaled anesthetics, sevoflurane, isoflurane, have vapor pressures so far below atmospheric pressure that they won't boil. They will have a constant amount, a constant number of molecules above the pool of anesthetic and therefore the variable bypass vaporizer can calculate what proportion of the fresh gas flow to send to pick up a known amount of anesthetic gas. So if we can't use a variable bypass vaporizer for desflurane, what is used? It has a special vaporizer called a Tech 9 and it heats the desflurane. It heats it to 39 degrees Celsius which increases its vapor pressure because remember, when you increase temperature, you increase vapor pressure to somewhere between 13 and 1500 millimeters of mercury, far above atmospheric pressure. Now all of the desflurane that is subject to that temperature will boil and will be in gas form. And so the vaporizer knows how much is there and can add that directly to the gas stream. There is no bypass chamber. The vaporizer adds a number of molecules based on the percent that you dial in. And so it works differently than the variable bypass vaporizers. What happens if you take a variable bypass vaporizer to an increased altitude? Let's say you have a vaporizer that's at sea level. It was calibrated at sea level. And you take it with you up to a place with half the atmospheric pressure that there is at sea level. So at sea level, there's 760 millimeters of mercury. And now we're going to a place where there's only 380 and now you, let's say, are using isoflurane. You dial in 1% isoflurane. What will you actually get? And the answer is you'll actually get 2%. Why? Because there's only half the pressure keeping those molecules in the liquid form. And so twice as many molecules will come out in the anesthetic chamber. And when that fresh gas flow passes by, it will pick up twice as many molecules. Will you overdose the patient? The answer is no, 
Why not? Because 2% is a percent of atmospheric pressure. And so 2% of 380 is the same as 1% of 760. So even though you've got more molecules escaping from that liquid, you're still only providing a percentage of a lower atmospheric pressure. And so the number of molecules delivered to the patient will not be changed. Now, this will be different with a desflurane vaporizer. And that's because, remember, there is no bypass chamber. There's no chamber where a certain amount of anesthetic comes out above that liquid and therefore would be twice as much at a lower atmospheric pressure. In the desflurane vaporizer, all of the gas is vaporized by the heating, and you then have the vaporizer adding whatever percent you dial in. So when you dial 6% desflurane up at altitude, you will get 6%, but it will be 6% of 380 and therefore only 3% of 760. So you will underdose the patient. You'll end up with an underdose. And the way to remember that is that if you had to make this thing, you'd rather make it to give an underdose than an overdose. So think that they made it in a safe way. Let's talk about volatile anesthetic uptake. The most important concept here is the FA to FI ratio. That's the fraction of alveolar concentration over the fraction of inhaled concentration of the gas. So think about when you start an in induction, let's say an inhaled induction, the alveolus has no anesthetic and the inhaled gas has a lot. As the fraction in the alveolus approaches the fraction that is being inhaled, that's when induction occurs. So what makes that happen? As the gas leaves the alveolus and goes into the blood, you lose the gas in the alveolus. And therefore, if your gas easily passes into the blood, it will take a long time before your fraction in the alveolus is the same as your inhaled fraction. However, with a very insoluble anesthetic, not much will leave the alveolus. So imagine a perfectly insoluble anesthetic take it to an extreme, none of that gas will be absorbed from the alveolus. And after one breath, FA will equal FI. That is the concept of why insoluble anesthetics achieve induction faster. So desflurane, which is much less soluble than isoflurane, achieves a much faster induction. You can really tie your head into knots trying to figure this out and trying to think about it because it doesn't seem on the surface to make sense. Your brain wants to tell you a more soluble anesthetic should induce faster because it'll get into the blood faster and then that means it'll get to the brain faster and doesn't that mean it will cause a faster induction? But this is not the case. The best thing you can do to get this down and remember it is just remember that if it doesn't leave the alveolus, that also means it won't leave the brain. The alveolus equals the brain. If you think about it like that, whatever's happening in the alveolus is happening in the brain. Don't worry about why. Just know that whatever's happening in the alveolus happens in the brain. So if the alveolus gets full and it doesn't leave the alveolus, then the brain gets full and it won't leave the brain. And therefore, you will have induction of anesthesia. So the less soluble the anesthetic, the faster the FAFI ratio approaches one and the faster your induction. How about intracardiac shunts? 
So let's start with a right-to-left shunt. So what's happening in a right-to-left shunt? Blood is going from the right side of the heart and making its way to the left side of the heart so that anything that has passed through the lungs is being diluted by blood that has not passed through the lungs. How will this affect your induction? The answer is your induction, your inhaled induction, will be slower. And why is that? Because you're diluting the anesthetic that came from the lungs with blood that has no anesthetic in it. Now, interestingly, this effect is greater for poorly soluble anesthetics like desflurane, and it's less for highly soluble anesthetics like isoflurane. Why? Because desflurane and sevoflurane are very insoluble, therefore only a small amount of anesthetic gets into the blood. If you dump a huge amount of blood that has no anesthetic and mix it, it will really dilute that small amount out to almost nothing. Whereas if you have a very soluble anesthetic like isoflurane, so much can get into the blood because it's so soluble that even the dilution that comes from the shunt doesn't dilute it down as much. So right-to-left shunt slows inhaled induction more for poorly soluble anesthetics and less for highly soluble anesthetics. The other shunts, so a left-to-right shunt for an inhaled induction will have very little effect on the rate of induction. And for IV inductions, a right-to-left shunt in the setting of an IV induction will make the induction faster. And that's easy to remember because the blood, you inject your IV, let's say propofol, into the blood, it just bypasses the lungs and goes straight to the brain. That's going to make it faster. And in the setting of a left-to-right shunt with an IV induction, it will have very little effect. A quick note on solubility coefficients. So when you hear that term solubility coefficient, it's referring to the blood gas solubility coefficient. And that's the ratio of the amount of volatile anesthetic dissolved in the blood to the amount dissolved in air. So the higher the number, the more soluble, meaning more is in the blood and less in the air. So the most rapid onset, remember we said was the least soluble and therefore will have the lowest blood gas partition coefficient or the lowest blood gas solubility coefficient. And so you should know approximately what these are. For desflurane, the coefficient is 0.42. Sevoflurane, as you know from, from your practice, is slightly less soluble, slightly slower than desflurane, and that's its coefficient matches that. Its coefficient is 0.69. Isoflurane, which is significantly slower in, in terms of its induction speed, has a solubility coefficient of 1.46. Just for your information, enflurane is 1.9 and halothane is 2.5, so significantly higher. Nitrous oxide is 0.46, so very fast on, fast off. Uh, similar, but not quite as low as desflurane, which again was 0.42. Let's talk about some other factors that affect the speed of onset of an inhaled induction. Alveolar ventilation affects the rate of induction, and that's because you can imagine the more you're breathing, the more you're breathing in inhaled anesthetic, the more you're delivering to the alveoli. And the more you deliver to the alveoli, the faster FA will rise. And remember we said as FA approaches FI, you get induction. And so the any factor that will increase FI will increase the rate of induction. Interestingly, al increasing alveolar ventilation 
increases the rate more for more soluble agents. So if you think about it, the more soluble agents are disappearing from the alveolus more, right? They're going into the blood. And so if you deliver more to the alveolus, that will have a bigger impact because there's more room to fill. Imagine an empty alveolus. If you can start bringing more anesthetic to that empty alveolus, that'll make a huge difference in terms of raising the FA. But with a poorly soluble anesthetic, imagine now a full alveolus. It doesn't matter how much more you deliver. It's already full. And so that's why it won't be full. I'm pushing this to an extreme. You'll have an alveolus that is more full with a poorly soluble anesthetic. And so increasing the alveolar ventilation will help, but not by that much because it's already almost full. Whereas with a very soluble anesthetic, you'll have a nearly empty alveolus. And so increasing the alveolar ventilation and delivering more to that alveolus will have a major effect on the speed of induction because it's all about how fast you raise FA and how fast, therefore, it approaches FI. With VQ mismatch, let's understand this by thinking about an endobronchial intubation. So you have a right main stem intubation. Now you have one lung, in this case the right lung, that's getting volatile anesthetic at twice the rate because if you haven't recognized it as a right main stem intubation, you're now ventilating that lung with twice as much gas and air as you would have been if you had a tracheal intubation. And the other lung, the left lung, is getting none. So the blood that passes through the left lung comes out with no anesthetic in it, and the blood from the right lung comes out with some amount of anesthetic in it. Obviously, because you're diluting the total amount when those two pools of blood mix, it will slow induction. But what's interesting is that it will slow it more for poorly soluble anesthetics. And that's because we just talked about how Increasing alveolar ventilation, which you have done to the right lung in the setting of a right mainstem intubation, will make a bigger difference in increasing FA in the alveoli that have very soluble anesthetic. Because remember, a lot of that anesthetic will disappear into the blood. You'll have a mostly empty alveolus, and so delivering more minute ventilation makes a big difference. So now your right lung, which is getting double the ventilation, double the minute ventilation, will, with a very soluble anesthetic, you'll make a big difference. That pool of blood passing through the right lung will have much more anesthetic in it because of the fact that it's very soluble. For a poorly soluble anesthetic, remember your alveoli are still almost full. So doubling minute ventilation doesn't do much, and it won't help very much in the setting of a right mainstem intubation. So for both kinds of anesthetics, soluble and insoluble, a right mainstem intubation or VQ mismatch in general will slow your induction, but it will slow it more for poorly soluble anesthetics and slow it less for very soluble anesthetics because the body can make up more of the difference with a very soluble anesthetic by doubling the minute ventilation. One of the more confusing factors is cardiac output. People tend to think that increasing cardiac output will speed the rate of induction with inhaled anesthetic. This is a commonly missed question on boards. They will ask you some version of, they'll give you a scenario where you have increasing cardiac output, and they'll ask you what that does to the onset of induction. And most people think it will speed it up. In their mind, they're thinking increasing cardiac output will carry more anesthetic to the brain, and therefore it'll go faster. 
But remember, we are only going to think about what happens in the alveolus. And increasing cardiac output will carry more anesthetic away from the alveolus. Therefore, decreasing FA, and if it decreases FA, it decreases the speed of onset. That's the only factor that you need to think about to get these questions right. What happens in the alveolus? So increased cardiac output will decrease the rate of induction because it carries the anesthetic away from the alveolus. If you want to take it a little further in terms of your understanding, you could think that increasing cardiac output will carry it to the brain faster, but it also carry it away from the brain faster. And that's why this works. But all you need to remember is what happens in the alveolus. Increasing cardiac output carries more anesthetic away from the alveolus and therefore slows the rate of induction. Why is the rate of induction so fast in infants? If you've ever anesthetized an infant, you know that after one or two big breaths, they're asleep. Why is it so fast? There are two important factors to know. One is they have incredibly high alveolar ventilation, and we've already talked about how increasing alveolar ventilation increases the speed of onset. And the second is they have a much lower FRC than adults. You can think of FRC, the functional residual capacity, as being essentially a tank that can accommodate air, gas, oxygen, whatever it is that's going into the alveoli. Once you fill that tank up, you can no longer deposit things there, and then it must go into the bloodstream. So with a low FRC, there's less of a reservoir for inhaled anesthetic to escape to, and therefore FA will have to rise faster. So imagine you've got an alveolus, you get some sevofluorine in there, but it can escape into the FRC out of the alveolus. So FA will decrease, and therefore it takes longer for FA to rise to be equal to FI. But if there's nowhere for it to escape to, if your FRC is full already because it's only very small like in an infant, then you have nowhere for it to escape to, and FA will rise faster, and induction will happen faster. Let's move on and talk about the second gas effect, something that is really not clinically relevant, but that you might get asked on boards. The second gas effect involves nitrous oxide. And what it's talking about is that because nitrous is so soluble, it's 20 times more soluble than oxygen or nitrogen. And so it is taken up faster than it can be replaced in the alveolus. So imagine now that in an alveolus, you have some sevofluorine, some oxygen, and some nitrous oxide. As the nitrous is taken up so quickly, there's now less, and it can't be replaced. It's taken up so quickly, it can't be immediately replaced. So now your concentration of sevofluorine and oxygen increase by virtue of the fact that you've lost a portion of what was there. They are now a larger portion of the total because you lost some of the total. Finally, remember that nitrous oxide enclosed spaces can be dangerous. The common examples are what happens when you use nitrous in someone with a pneumothorax? So a pneumothorax can double in size in 10 minutes if you're on 50% nitrous, and it can get to be four times the size in 10 minutes on 75% nitrous. So really fast expansion in a closed space. Similarly, in eye cases, if a ophthalmologist injects gas behind the eye, in ear cases, if there's gas trapped in the ear canal, and similarly, with an endotracheal tube cuff, if you use nitrous throughout a long case, check your endotracheal tube cuff because the nitrous can diffuse into it and expand quite a bit. In fact, I once pulled 40 cc's of air out of an endotracheal tube cuff 
after a few hours on nitrous when initially eight cc's had been placed in there. All right, let's wrap up. We've covered vapor pressure. We talked about the specific vapor pressures of certain inhaled anesthetics, the mnemonic high C to help remember which ones are similar in case you get a question about putting an incorrect inhaled anesthetic in an incorrect vaporizer. We talked about the effects of altitude on both desflurane and uh, other anesthetics. We talked about the FA to FI ratio and different factors that affect the onset of inhaled induction, such as alveolar ventilation, shunts, VQ mismatch, cardiac output, and being an infant. We talked about the second gas effect, and we talked about nitrous oxide in closed spaces. All right, we've come to the end. Thank you for listening. I hope this was useful. If you have ideas or suggestions of topics you'd like to hear discussed in the future, please send me an email at accracpodcast at gmail.com. That's podcast at gmail.com. Or once I get a website up and running for this podcast, you can leave a comment, of course, on the show notes. I want to leave you with this. Sometimes between giving anesthesia, being a resident, and having to study for your boards, you can start to be pretty tired. You can start to get disillusioned. You can start to wonder if what you're doing is really important or valued. And sometimes surgeons and patients don't make it any easier. But I want you to know and I want you to believe that what you're doing every day is really important and it is valued. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.